Now, tonight is going to be a somewhat different style of talk, very different than the uh, sort of one easy session through the wilderness journeys that we did a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and this one is written, it, it's a vision of the kingdom which is written very much in the style of the final consolation and with what represents a very deeply personal perspective on our life in the kingdom. So the evening style is going to be meditational. In fact, I'm not going to be churning out quotes directly um, through tonight, as I'm trying to draw together essentially an element of what the kingdom will look like. I've attempted as much as possible to draw scripture as the basis for the details of what we're given in that time. And so the vision is fully based on what I can find in the scriptures. Where those details aren't available, I've also attempted to be very true to the scriptural principles involved and consistent where possible with patterns of the past as well. So it's really a gleaning together of, of all of these ideas, but to, to draw a picture for you of what is my hope of the kingdom and hopefully can be helpful for you as well. I am very conscious with this subject that the, the subject is so elevated that, that it can be very easy to, to get into hyperbole in a, in a hurry. Uh, and, and you'll probably find that a bit as we go through. But I believe, again, this is justified because, because our mind is really stretched to comprehend just a smidgen of what immortality is going to be like, and, and hyperbole is therefore very, very real in this case. And, and there will also be some repetition of thought of, of things that are happening and continue to happen through the kingdom. And again, I believe that's consistent with what we see in scripture about the kingdom as well, because there is a consistency of, of response that's going to be invoked in us. But what I really want to be able to achieve tonight, God willing, with the, the Father's blessing, is to help you each personally see the reality of Christ's return, and particularly the joy of the kingdom. As we touched on briefly in our last session, I believe that there are many, many quotes which warn us that the times we are in, the age we are in right at the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, is a time when the concept of assimilation, the danger of assimilation, is something that we face. The lesson of Balaam and Phineas, right at the very edge of the kingdom, as they're about to go in, into the promised land, after all that time in the wilderness and all the lessons they had learned, 24,000 of the generation who should have gone into the land were lost. It's the lesson, the warning, of being tempted to scale the heights of Baal people and to partake in the worship of the age. And so let's commence then with this picture of the kingdom. For thousands of years, the saints have longed and watched, watched wait, waited and prayed. They've agonized, they've prepared, they've pleaded for one particular day, which is the day of our Lord's return. And, and of all generations, we have had the indescribable privilege but also the deep challenge of being alive at the coming of Christ. The privilege because we shall not die, because we've been waiting to welcome him in our life. But the challenge because like every closing of an era, our focus can drift and the allure of this life can steal us away. That of all generations, we are warned of that danger of assimilation. On a day like any other, we awoke. We brushed our teeth, we ate, we headed out, and the call came. Our mind is naturally a blur with the suddenness of the moment, a time we've long imagined, but, but which catches us now with the force of its reality, 
moments of fear, moments of joy, moments of shame, moments of hope, moments of despair, moments of faith flash before our mind. But there is no doubt. God exists and he has sent his son back to the earth. And so we've been taken with our families and friends to Sinai, where the judgment process occurs. We know that the purpose of this judgment is the absolute vindication of God's righteousness, that he alone will be shown to be right. And yet the process of judgment will also be the final cutting and polishing of our individual gemstone as a process of perfecting us to bring us to his kingdom. Our families are settled in their places around the mount. And while we are able to support one another in the daily things of life, it is obvious that the coming process will be a deeply personal individual time in which we are individually accountable. We've been met by an angel who will take us through the initial part of the judgment process. There is naturally an awe-inspired response as we meet them face to face. That's consistent with every other faithful person in history who's come face to face with the angels, these ministers of God in person. And so we find ourselves seated next to our angel and we realize with somewhat of a shock that the judgment seat has commenced. There is fear, understandably. Yet somehow the realization that this angel has been with us from the beginning has been a key part of our own development. Picture the scene. We pause for a moment and looking shyly across, we see a gentle yet regal face. The conversation flows freely and openly. At times, of course, we hesitate and yet their gentle prodding marks, makes us more open than we've ever been with anyone in our life. We talk of our life, of our struggles, of our strengths. We talk on the Bible. We talk on our questions and we receive the most compelling and powerful answers. There are times when our heart swells with the beauty and power of what is explained to us, and we feel our faith growing. There are times when we tremble in despair at our own weakness and inadequacy. We feel broken, unable to ever accomplish the majesty of what God has called us to. Yet somehow, through it all, our angel brings us back to the knowledge that God is able to save us in his son. Our conscience seems to be burning at times. And as we consider elements of our life, we recognize how completely unworthy we are. We find ourselves led gently, but deliberately through moments where step by step, we are brought to a confession like that of Adam. And as each step brings out of us an acknowledgement of need, we somehow feel also the childlike relief of conscience cleansed and the firm trust in the Father's ability to protect and to save. 
there is this unbelievable sense of awareness and closeness with our angel. And then with a start, we realize, of course, why this is. Because this angel knows us better than we know ourselves. This angel has been there in all the key moments of our life, as well as the little normal events of life. They have seen every action. They've known every thought. They've seen the deepest struggles of our life and rejoiced in every triumph. And the thought of that deep awareness of our inner soul terrifies us for a moment. But as we progress, we find also that they understand our struggles. And while they're clear on what God says is right, yet there is this enormous compassion towards the struggles we have had. So bit by bit, our life is laid bare. But as we talk with them, we begin to comprehend the slow but consistent pattern of development that has been occurring in our life. The angel notes the moments where we have worked hard to create habits of consistent reading of God's word. They take us through examples where our life has been transformed by that quiet, consistent, constant input of God's mind. They acknowledge the process, the, the progress we made when confronted by major challenges in life. They acknowledge the opportunities we took to humble ourselves and to acknowledge our need for God and, and how all these little moments, all these little changes we made begin the process of transformation. And as we grew and our appreciation of what the Father has done for us developed, our angels note the change in how we spent our time. Stronger control of what we allowed the world to put in our mind. The commitment more and more to read and to understand and to love God's word. A daily contemplation as we stopped and took time to think about God. To pray with him, to communicate with him and to develop that greater and greater relationship with him as we began to rely on him in our life. And then, interestingly, we see that this transformation began to create a desire within us to see our friends and our family also progress in that relationship with God, that we took a much stronger interest in how our friends were going, that we tried so much harder to encourage and to lift them up in their struggles. They noted our care for the elderly. They noted the care we gave to those in need throughout the collegial life. And the contribution we began to make in other areas as, as we began to see opportunity to serve, not just our brothers and sisters, but in that also our Lord Jesus Christ. And as our conversation draws to an end, we realize how close we now feel with this one, this angel who has been so instrumental in developing our heart and our life, our relationship with God. Those little moments of realization as we talk through them, ah, oh, oh, that was you that did that there. Well, that's why that occurred as, as, as all of a sudden the moments of life that seem so confusing come 
come together in a realization of the, of the hand of the angel at work. And in that moment, our hearts swell with love for them and, and for our Father in the long-suffering and love that's been shown to us so consistently. And just for a moment, we look deeply at them. Our heads may be slightly shaking, perhaps a shadow of sadness that passes as we contemplate the frustrating moments they've shared with us. But replaced with somewhat of a wry smile in our face. And we thank our angel with all our heart for all they've done with us in our life. And so the moment comes when we shall appear before our Lord. And that morning our mind is naturally racing. Every moment of our life is centered now upon this one day, this one moment. We prepare to meet him, but our thoughts are jumbled and our minds a little numb. As life has developed, we've come to appreciate with a deeper and a deeper sense how utterly our entire salvation depends upon him. Not that he's a beacon or an inanimate ob object there. Not as if he's some idol that we set up. But that he's been there. That he's known us. That he's worked with us. That he's served us. That he's washed us. That he's laid us ever so gently down next to him on his altar as his bride. That he has served us to the utmost in every facet. And so we come before our Lord Jesus Christ. We feel encouraged by the time spent with the angel. And yet with a far deepened sense that we are completely unworthy. And in the midst of that moment, as we stand before him, our eyes slowly rise to meet his. And we're staggered by the gentle majesty of the just one. For thousands of years, the faithful have longed for this moment. They've seen him with the eye of faith. But the reality is so much more glorious than our deepest imagination. The wisdom and the purity, the love, the understanding, the glory that shines from him is profound. And we so desperately want to thank him for everything he has done. There's so much praise and thankfulness and joy that, that's bursting to spring out. But somehow, in the face of his perfection, we are overwhelmed. And our tongue remains mute. We're not in a state of terror, but of profound awe. What can we say before him upon whom every atom of creation was molded, upon which every pattern of scripture depended, the fullness of, of every element of every faithful saint in one glorious, mighty person? Yes, we've known of his perfection, but now, in this moment, our mortal minds are bursting with the enormity of all that he is. 
the brightness of God's glory and the exact imprint of his person. And we see and understand that in such fullness now in this time before him. Indeed, here standing in front of him, we see the Father revealed in all his majesty. And then our mind races again, and we despair at our inadequacy and our desperate need. How can we even lift our face to him who is so pure? And our eyes linger for a moment downcast and, and see some obvious marks in his hands. And with a start, we realize that these are his wounds. And, and in response, in our minds are drawn to the foot of the cross as we've been in desperate times before. And our quivering hearts recall just for a moment at the foot of that cross, the cacophony of sin that raged about him on every side. Himself took our sins. And with that heart-rending cry, he yielded himself up to his father, victorious at last over sin. And our mind races through quotes of scripture and, and thoughts that just overwhelm us as we realize the enormity of the sacrifice he has made. Was it for me? Thy flesh was wounded sore. Is sin so dark that God cannot forgive except through this death? Absolute wholehearted service, we realize. We see and understand his wholehearted sacrifice. And in that moment, we know that as the earth convulsed at his death, we have been reconciled to God. And as the grave could not hold him, so we also in our lives followed that pattern being raised to a newness of life. And we're dead in him. We're baptized in fellowship with his death. And and yet, nevertheless, we live in him, but not us, and not for us, but we live by him, by the life of the Son of God. And so we fall on our faces before him, and from our lips, thou alone art worthy, O Lord, in you is all the fullness of the Father and all his glory revealed. Our mind races to the words of Paul. We realize that we've been brought at last to a complete and a fully compre comprehending confession that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Selah. A strong but gentle voice lifts us up. Their eyes are slowly drawn to his. We behold him, majestic yet kind, so truthful and yet so compassionate, the perfect combination of the regal lion and yet with the gentleness of that same lamb. He speaks, and we can scarce 
comprehend the power of what is spoken. I know you, brother. I know you, sister. I have seen your struggles. I have known your effort. I have been satisfied with the cup of cold water you gave in my name. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Selah. The moment of acceptance seems so intense and the explosion of our thoughts so magnificent that, that although it must have been brief, it feels as if, as if it has consumed us for hours. But our still mortal bodies and minds now guaranteed the glory of immortality are at such a fever pitch of joy and of relief that we can only stand mute before our Lord our mind full of the depth of Yahweh's character that's brought us to this moment, in spite of our weakness, that he can and has been willing to save. And we look once again to that one who has made this possible. And although our words are simple and our thanks short before him, there is a powerful moment of understanding that passes between us and the deeper sense of fellowship and of unity and of love with him. We move away profoundly humbled and profoundly thankful. It's hard to know the space of time that elapses from the joy of that acceptance and the approaching moment of immortalization. We try to imagine the blessing of what immortality will be like, but even in our accepted position, it's so fabulous as to be almost unimaginable. The moment where our body is transformed to become a spirit being, living forever, will be the deepest, most powerful experience we have ever had by light years. Contemplate just for a moment the deepest joy that you have ever felt in life the fullest emotional response, and that is nothing, that is pathetic, not worthy to be compared beside the glory and the joy and the wonder that we shall experience in that moment. The moment of immortalization is too great for our mortal minds to fully comprehend. But there are echoes, perhaps, of another moment at Sinai. As the glory of Yahweh descends and the voice of the trumpet waxes louder and louder across the glorious throng of faithful waiting here, but this time not for that throng to flee away in fear, but in rejoicing to understand that the glory of the Father is here to dwell in them in immortality. To say that a deep sense of relief runs through our entire being is to minimize the enormity of this glorious change. To say that our bodies feel utterly revitalized away from constant daily weakness 
to an energy and a vitality and a strength is to miss the total to totality of the transformation as our bodies become motivated by spirit power. To say that we are totally enveloped in joy is to belie the depth in which our every fiber exalts and every thought bursts with thankfulness to the Father and to the Son. Imagine the sensation then as our tired, puny, weak bodies are transformed, as our blood is taken away, and our body begins to thrive on the working of the Spirit. This is even you noted here in Isaiah 40. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon Yahweh shall renew their strength. They'll renew their strength again. With energy there, they shall mount up with wings as eagles, and they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And we know in that moment that the fullness and the power of that verse as the sensation of strength and of energy and of no more weakness courses through our body. But we notice also the clarity of thought that we suddenly gain and our ability to recall and to understand and to perceive. Our mind thrilling with the expansion of concepts and our hearts burning within us as scripture locks together. And Yahweh's purpose becomes absolutely clear. Our, our minds are beautifully elevated and strengthened. Fear is gone. Doubt is removed. Pain is lifted. Our own inadequacies disappeared. Anxiety forever answered. Depression cast into the midst of the sea. Sickness and struggle gone. All of the difficulties of this life gone. The anguish, sadness gone. And most of all, never again struggle against sin. Never again to feel our own body and our own mind leading us astray from the principles of God with that wretchedness of, of Paul that he mentions in Romans 7. Never again that fight in which we always seem to be struggling. Sin conquered, cast away. Never again to overcome us. Paul says in first. Corinthians 15, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. And our minds go to those verses. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us, has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the words of Revelation 7 from verse 14, these are they 
which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. Neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. For the Lamb, which is in the midst of the throne, shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters. And God, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. We stand in the middle of a glorious multitude of the redeemed, immortal and full of joy. But while we have been saved, there is still so much to learn. Our Lord, to whom we feel such a deep affinity now, understands that, that need, and, and particularly our need for time together and time with him. And so as the world outside prepares for the coming of the Lord, plunging into a deeper and deeper darkness, the saints are gathered, as it were, into our Lord's chamber in a peaceful, enriching time of fellowship. Gathered together into a multitude, we are addressed as one by our Lord, our attention fastened upon him. He speaks to us all as a multitude, Yet the words are so deeply personal and relevant to each one. And, and as he concludes speaking to us, our voices raise in one glorious, triumphant song. Every heart raised with perfect, immortal voices now. Imagine the glory of that and the harmony of thought and of music that swell acceptably right into the dwelling place of God himself. As the angels of heaven join in rejoicing and join their swelling voices to ours. And then the time of mingling and of fellowship within this glorious group, this bride of our Lord now redeemed is so incredibly powerful. There is a sense of deep fellowship with every member we come in contact with. There is the joy of interaction with our own families now sharing in this glorious immortality, yet so profound, so profound, that our immortal hearts yearn now in the power of the happiness of salvation that we can share together with them. We see those dear to us, those we have lost, and we are able to spend time with them and to catch up with them and take us through the process of life and to understand in their conversations how the Father had worked with them also. And we see many faithful who we can perhaps remember from just faint interactions we've had since childhood, those little childhood memories we have of, of faithful brothers and sisters and 
of those dear memories down through time. And again, we can catch up with them and discuss in such a beautiful and powerful way both the Father's work in their life, but share in such a fellowship of joy with the mind of the Father and the power of the Word as we discuss that Word together. And then interspersed with that, we find interactions with faithful from all ages. We see perhaps on the side, David and Uriah engaged now in a profound conversation. Or Stephen and Paul, who can rejoice in the spreading forth of God's truth and the certainty of what it has accomplished in them. So many faithful that we have read about and so many others besides, as we begin to comprehend the power and the perfection of all the Father has done in gathering together his people. And we notice for just a moment that our interactions have been free and open. That quiet sense of satisfaction that none of the awkwardness of our mortal fellowship exists no struggle with the intense nature of our relationships in ecclesial life or of the struggles of human nature. All pre previous human struggle is gone and our weakness removed. And we feel so transformed now, as if freed from the shackles of our own challenges. And then comes the moment when we gather together with the group of saints, with our Lord at the head, and we break bread and drink wine with him in his Father's kingdom. Has there ever been a memorial feast as this one? With all the power that we have experienced in that memorial feast on a constant weekly basis whilst in, in our mortality, that constant remembrance we have had in holding a weekly bread and wine, has ever, has ever there been a memorial feast held like this one? Or has ever the broken bread and the poured out wine had a deeper significance than when we break and share it with him and with the faithful of in every generation as a memorial to what he has accomplished with the Father. Our minds expand with the deepest appreciation of the work accomplished by the Father and the Son. We see so deeply behind, beyond what, what was often just a shallow examination of ourselves and a focus on our own weaknesses. We see to the glory of God and the sacrifice of the Son. We see the enormity of what he has accomplished. accomplished. We see the purity of forgiveness and of sinless immortality obtained in him. And once again, our heart burns with the understanding of all that this memorial feast now means to us. Yahweh, we see in all the perfection of his glory, standing supreme and our faith in him and his ability to save us, triumphantly vindicated. And here, visible in front of us, the Son of God, 
in whom we see the exact replication of the Father's glory and the depth of his character that shines so greatly. And the sense of fellowship and of total communion with every saint present, united in one body. And just for a moment, we wish that we've been able to bring that power, that sense of all of the Father's work and of that fellowship with him into our mortal remembrances. It seems but a moment in our immortal strength. But this time of fellowship, this marriage of the Lamb covers some time, time, perhaps months together. Inside, there is such purity and joy. There is such a focus on the perfection of Yahweh's character and his righteousness. And yet outside, we sense the clouds of war shaping and the tension of a world that is about to convulse as it faces its greatest moment and the kingdom of God is established upon the earth. We're told that the world has descended into gross darkness, that it covers the earth. And now, is the opportunity, the time for the saints to shine forth and to begin at last the process by which Yahweh's glory shall fill the earth, although of necessity the kingdom of men must be ground to powder. There is a need for the earth to be brought to its knees. There is the honour of the saints to go forth and to wreak judgment on the powers of the earth, the powers of sin. And so glorious and resplendent in immortal power, and with the, the certainty and the knowledge of God's power within us, we march forth out of Sinai and head towards the promised land. A promised land and a city the apple of God's eye in Jerusalem, which is now encompassed by the armies of the earth as they fight one another over Yahweh's holy place. His feet stand upon the Mount of Olives and it cleaves in the midst and the enormity of God's power and of all he is able to accomplish convulses the earth and pulls it open. And every power of nature at our disposal, we go forth to stop those armies from destroying God's people and to save the nation of Judah at last. The moment comes as the dust settles and the last bullets fly around that the saints approach to those scattered and humbled remnant of Judah. We come out of their hiding places to understand at last who their saviour is. We haven't got time particularly to go through the picture of 
the emotion of Judah as they stand before their Lord and see the wounds in his hands and his feet. To see such a personal response that every house is a part in their mourning and every individual a part in their desire to be reconciled, not just with their God, but also in his son, this Jesus of Nazareth. But we can imagine the power that begins to transform them as they come to understand the salvation that is now theirs and to know that at last their God has come to save them. There is so much then that happens in those intervening years, the call on the nations to submit, as some do, but many who fight, particularly those nations of Europe who see our Lord Jesus Christ as the Antichrist and who fight against him. We see the work of Elijah as he is sent forth with the nation of Judah to call back God's people scattered from throughout the, the earth at last to be brought back. We know the parallels to that first wilderness journey of the time of 40 years of probation and, and of testing, of development, of the final development of character, not just of that generation, but of the generation to come, who will enter at last as a nation, as God's people, brought back into covenant relationship with him. We know of the entry through into the land, through the valley of Achor as a door of hope, as a door of the salvation of, of the desperateness of their need as they are taken into fellowship. We know from Ezekiel of that nation, of that saved nation being brought into the temple and made to understand the fullness of all it represents to them, the, the glory of God's work of salvation that for them would cover thousands of years, that God had taken them out, as it were, had brought them out of Egypt 4,000 years before, not just to bring them into the promised land, but to bring them resplendent in glory now into his temple and to gather them as his covenant people who could understand the perfection of Yahweh's character and know him in its entirety because they have understood the power of his forgiveness. Israel now, in a glorious position as the head of all nations. And likewise, we don't have time now to contemplate daily life in the kingdom. The role of the saints as, as we go out to our villages and out to our towns. And we oversee the lives of those mortals who remain. That quiet voice behind them in a time of need. In a time of trial. Perhaps that little tap on the shoulder. This is the way. Walk ye in it. We don't have time to contemplate 
the feasts that are held in Zion, that glorious place, nor the fertility of the land, the productiveness of the earth, as it brings forth in abundance and provides for its people in such a powerful way, no more hunger, no more pain, peace and serenity that spreads across the earth. But what we do find is that the Father's focus shifts from just the return of his Son and the restoration of his people into glorious immortality to the time beyond the millennium. And, and we realize with the start that, that actually God's focus has always been that time beyond, beyond the millennium. But for us, the return of our Lord has been such a focal point and so it is, because, and so it should be, because that is when we are given immortality and our trial finishes and the salvation is won. But that from the Father's perspective, the joy of the kingdom and the transforming time of the kingdom is just a process by which he achieves his ultimate purpose of filling the earth entirely with his glory. And the time beyond that millennium that we look forward to, when God is all in all and sin at last destroyed <clears throat> and utterly done away. And so we come now to the moment of the inauguration of the temple. The moment when all the preparations of the kingdom are completed, the 40 year period from his return from his return at Armageddon and the thousand-year reign of our Lord commences. And just picture this scene now as we make our way up to the temple. We've spent the morning making our way through the land of Israel, a land of glory now, a wonder of, of rich natural abundance, a land that in every sense flows with milk and honey, We've traversed pathways among fields of golden grain, past clear rivers and bubbling brooks, paddocks full of pure white sheep and cattle in abundance. There's a clarity in the air and a depth of light that seems to accentuate every glorious new vista. The forests of the hills around are alive with bird life and insects humming, the sounds of bees on the glorious riot of wildflowers with their buds causing the warm air to hang heavy with the scent. It's a, it's a beautiful scene that unfolds. It's just one more indication of a world, of a land restored to all the glory of nature, all the glory of the Father's creation, richly blessed by the abundance of the Father. And our heart rejoices in it. Yet even that has been surpassed by the depth of fellowship we have experienced as groups of saints have converged on their journey to the temple. After one warm introduction to a group, we've walked deep in conversation for some 15 minutes when we realize that this is Ruth and Boaz and Naomi. For another, we have joined in talk of the fulfillment of 
Isaiah 53 and our Lord Jesus Christ, only to realize that the two particularly leading the conversation on our journey are Isaiah himself with the Apostle John. And then we've rejoiced with Daniel and with the Apostle John as, as we've discussed the unfolding of their prophecies and been able to confirm to them their application even to the moment of the coming of our Lord. And the joy of that conversation means that we quickly cover the miles. And it's with a sense of surprise that we find ourselves passing a ridge and seeing that glorious temple laid out before us. Conversation dies away. And as a group, we stand in quiet awe at the splendor of Yahweh's house, so beautiful in all its glory before us. A little later, a brilliant light envelops the scene, stretching from the eastern ends of this magnificent temple and bathing the throngs of people who surround us within it. The beautiful Pillars and the stunning white hallways are lost in the glory pulsing from this radiant group whose attention lies centered on our Lord, upon his throne, in our midst. And our hearts swell again with all the depth of what he has done for us and with the indescribable privilege of immortality we share. And so with with one spontaneous burst of gratitude, we, we burst into glorious song, every fiber of our immortal bodies stretching, and our voices responding with the richest, purest, fullest harmony of praise and of thanks to him. Worthy is the Lamb, our hearts proclaim, and from every side upon us, the echoing strain of thousands of immortal voices bursting forth. To heaven itself. Our Lord has come, and we have welcomed him, and in glorious immortality, we are with him. Now, unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen.